Welcome to Election 2020, Insights from History, coming to you from the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University. My name is Nick Breifogel, and I'm an Associate Professor of History, and I'll be your host and moderator today. We're so happy that you all joined us. The 2020 elections are often described as historic and unprecedented. What exactly has been historic about this election? And what insights can history offer us to make sense of the current state of American politics? Today, we bring together four experts on American political history from the History Department at Ohio State for a conversation about the elections. We'll explore political campaigns and parties, the role of race and class and gender in American politics, and just what has caused and what can be done about the cultural and political divides across the country. How does election 2020 fit or defy historical trends in American politics? And where do we go from here? Let me introduce the panelists. First, please meet Paula Baker, uh, who has written on US political history of the 19th and 20th centuries on such topics as uh, gender, campaign finance, and political parties. And my friendly uh, panelists, please do uh, unmute and uh, uh, turn on your video uh, as you're coming on. That'd be great. Uh, so this is Paula. Uh, also joining us is Susan Hartman, uh, who has published and lectured extensively on women's movements and women in politics. <clears throat> Excuse me, women in politics. Uh, let me also introduce uh, Clay Howard, uh, a specialist in post-war U.S. history. His research interests include the histories of American cities, suburbs, uh, gender and sexuality, and politics. And last but not least, please meet Hassan Kwame Jeffries, the author of several books on Black history. He's also the creator of the well-known Teaching Hard History podcast and program for educators. Thanks to the four of you very, very much for joining us. Now, uh, we'll open the discussion among our panelists, uh, panelists uh, and ask them to respond to your questions. Uh, many of you submitted questions when you registered and we'll answer some of those to begin with. Uh, we'll also be collecting questions during the event through the question and answer feature on Zoom. Uh, so please do send them in. Uh, we've received a lot of questions. We'll do our best to answer as many of them as we possibly can, but please don't be hurt if we don't quite get to every last one. Um, but we will do our very, very best. Um, I'm really excited for the event today. Uh, these are far great, great people to learn from uh, about putting the current political climate uh, into historical perspective. All right, let's jump in. Uh, let's start with a kind of big question and I'll throw this one uh, to Clay to, uh, to begin. Um, so what has exactly been historic uh, about 2020? What do you see as, as new and different uh, about this election? Or actually, do you see it as historic? Is this just business as usual? Uh, are there continuities or familiar uh, precedents uh, that we've seen before? So Clay, let me throw this your way and then others, please jump in. Uh, thanks, Nick. Um, it's great to be here. Um, you know, when I first thought about this question, I was thinking about some of the kind of more obvious stuff about how there, there's a lot that's unprecedented, right? That the, 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 pres the current president's contesting of the, of the results, for example, the fact that it happened during a, a pandemic, all these things, you know, seem really new to me. But I also was thinking, you know, there's a pattern of uh, polarization, of contested elections, of um, all kinds of stuff going back 20 to 30 years. And so I guess what I would say is that we know that 
in the 1990s, um, Newt Gingrich, who was Speaker of the House, was a, a kind of different kind of Republican. And he pushed his fellow Republicans to like not sit with Democrats in the congressional lunchroom to really like ramp up the, um, the rhetoric around elections and specific issues to really kind of demonize the enemies and to try and um, win by narrow margins, right? If they can't win like large majorities to go ahead and try and win edge kind of smaller elections. And so if you think about it, like just at the national level, Clinton wins in a three-way race in 92. The Republicans win the House of Representatives in 1994. In 95, the government shuts down over a budget impasse. Clinton wins again. There's an impeachment led by Republicans in Congress. In 2000, there's like the closest race in US history that comes down to Florida. That's like a contested election. 2004, Republicans win a narrow, um, a narrow margin. This starts to be voter ID laws to try and restrict like who can vote. Um, Obama wins big, he wins again. Then the Supreme Court overturns parts of the Voting Rights Act, which allows people to have more voter ID laws. And then you get Donald Trump in 2016 and then our election today. So if you kind of see it in that larger context, I think it's bigger than just President Trump. And I think there's a larger kind of pattern. Now, I, I, would, I would second what Dr. Howard shared. And I, I would add only that I think there are elements that are uh, consistent um, and, and there are elements that are just, are just different. I think one of the elements uh, that is consistent uh, has been the voter suppression. Uh, coming out of the Voting Rights Act era, there has been a steady drumbeat, a steady effort uh, to tramp down the, uh, the vote of people of color, particularly African-Americans. And so some of those efforts that we saw um, that picked up, as Dr. Howard was saying, uh, following the Shelby Beholder Supreme Court ruling, uh, essentially taking the teeth away from the Voting Rights Act, uh, that was an extension of stuff that we saw in the 1980s uh, by the Justice Department uh, under the Reagan administration targeting Black elected officials down in the, uh, in the Deep South. And so one of the consistent themes uh, that we see throughout uh, modern presidential elections or modern elections in general, when we think about the national level, has been the effort uh, to suppress the vote. And I think that's one of, one of the, as we look back at this election, uh, we ought not forget that aspect of it, despite the high turnout. Uh, it wasn't because it didn't exist. Uh, it was in fact because people overcame it and organized around it. Uh, and we shouldn't also let uh, the uh, misinformation about ballot fraud and voter fraud take away from the fact that there was actual real efforts to, to suppress the vote going into the election. I'd pick up on the polarization point too, where at least uh, uh, I teach this course on presidential elections. I'd like to do it as a seven week course so students can see the beginning, the middle and the end. And also because uh, we're done before the election and that's always a good thing. Uh, and in uh, I'll use some um, uh, uh, Pew uh, Charitable Trust uh, research data and uh, uh, on that basis, uh, the 90s almost looked like the good old days, uh, the, the kind of mounting sense of the uh, 
of uh, people saying that uh, they uh, um, wouldn't want their children to marry someone of the opposite party, uh, the, the sense that uh, the uh, people in the other party aren't just in another party, but are uh, actively bad and the enemy has uh, just uh, sort of exploded since then. And the 90s almost look, you know, kind of like a happy baseline. And maybe that's because that's when that polling began because polarization seemed to be increasing, but uh, it's really kind of striking how that's taken off and this and Trump is almost more of a product of it than uh, than someone who caused it. He's you know, uh, someone who uh, uh, benefited from a an ongoing pattern. I, I wonder if if that polarization um, is is also responsible for the for the high voter turnout. Um, I mean, despite, as Hassan has said, despite the, uh, the efforts at voter suppression, uh, this was the highest turnout since the early, the very early uh, 20th century. It's, I, it's, I think it's going to be about 67 or 68 percent. So that is an enormous turnout. And, and, and I'd like to, to echo um, his, his comments about how people try to fight against it in Georgia, which as we know is very, very close in the uh, presidential election, Stacey Abrams and her organization enlisted uh, 800,000 new voters um, since 2018. So the suppression has also, I think, has also in turn um, stimulated people to, to get out the vote and to protect, um, to protect voters. It'll be interesting to see if that turnout uh, maintains itself in the next election. Kind of following up on that, one, one of the questions that we were, uh, we were asked was whether, has there ever been a time before, talking about sort of unprecedented or, or new, has there ever been a time before where the a kind of sitting president has contested the outcomes of the elections in the way that we're seeing uh, at, uh, at the moment? Or is this something, something something unprecedented ultimately. Paula, do you, do you reach back in history? Do you find anything there? The, the, uh, the very close elections of the past that were either contested or could have been contested, uh, neither of me, uh, those I could think of didn't involve incumbents. So, uh, uh, so it was a different situation. Mm -hmm. So I can't think of. Didn't involve an incumbent. 1960 didn't involve an incumbent. I mean, uh, and, and I mean, of course, uh, you know, not involving incumbent as the exception, but we can think about just 2000, right? Now, our, our students may be too young to remember, uh, you know, Bush v. Gore, but clearly, uh, we all can remember, uh, you know, the 500, you know, and so votes. Uh, as, as Clay was pointing out down in Florida. It doesn't get any closer than that. Um, but, but I think here's the interesting thing is this election actually isn't that close, right? I mean, it, it, the, the, the margin is, is, is in, in, the, in this quote unquote contested states. Oh, I apologize, children running. The, the margin in the contested states uh, is greater than it was uh, in 2016. 
And so I think we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of misinformation or disinformation saying that, oh, this was really close. You know, but I think when it all shakes out, I mean, you know, according to some 306 electoral votes is a landslide. Mm -hmm. So I think it's relative uh, uh, by comparison. Yeah, the news today was saying that uh, Biden will be, is about to hit about eight, uh, 80 million votes uh, and about a six million vote difference uh, in the kind of overall national vote, uh, at least as of today, uh, depending on how the counts go. Um, so the, if, if I could just say, so the question of contested, right? Is, is, it, it, is, it, is it being contested on legitimate grounds that, hey, this is close, we gotta go back and let's, let's just make sure or is this a complete fabrication, right? I mean, I think that's also important to kind of point out. Mm -hmm. I, I just like to, um, if we're ready to slightly change the subject, but um, I just like to add something else that really is historic that we haven't mentioned yet. And that's the election of Kamala Harris as vice president. I mean, you know, the first African-American uh, to be uh, elected vice president, the first African-American woman, the first um, South Asian woman, that really, really is historic and we need to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up on that actually, because that is the, the election of, of the first woman kind of into the White House is really, uh, is something uh, really, really quite new. We've had a lot of people who are, who are attending the webinar today who are interested in kind of thinking about um, the importance of, uh, of, of, of the women's vote in this election here. And, uh, and so um, I'm curious, and, and maybe we'll start with you, Susan, on this, but just is the, uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, the sort of trends in, in voting and campaigning, uh, sort of voting and campaigning uh, for office among women uh, in this election versus others? Uh, what, is, what is, again, perhaps newer different uh, today, or what are some of the kind of patterns that we've been seeing growing up over the past uh, you know, decades, say? Well, in terms of voting, um, the, this election carried on um, a, um, a momentum that has been in effect since about 1980, and that is, that is the gender gap in voting. Um, about 50 percent, about 50 57 percent of, um, of women voted for Biden, but only about 43, 44, 45 percent of men. So that's a gender gap, the difference between the percentages of men and women. That's a gender gap of about 11 or uh, 10 or 11 or 12 points. Um, and that, as I said, that's not new, um, but, um, but it did secure the election for, for Biden. Um, I think it's also important to, when we talk about the gender gap and that we bring race into it because um, only a minority of white women voted for, for Biden, about 43, 44% of all white women voted for Biden, but he got a majority of the women's vote because black women and other women of color voted for Biden in, in larger numbers than they voted for, for Trump. I think, I think the figure for black women is 90% um, of all black women voted for, um, for Biden. Um, and, and there's a gender gap in the African-American voting population too, about 79% um, voted of, of black men 
uh, voted for Biden as opposed to 90% of uh, black women. I think the, the, the racialization of that, of, of the gender is so critical too, um, because we've seen those splits in terms of uh, particularly thinking about women and voting for, voting Democratic, right, over, uh, and, and Black women and white women over, you know, for the last 20, 30 years. I mean, it, that, that hasn't really shrunk at all. Um, and I think what's interesting too, when we think about race, you know, we often think about sort of black, you know, black people and black women, but um, when we think about race and gender, the, the percentage of white women, last I checked, went up uh, who voted for Trump this year over, over 2016, um, which is, yeah, which is no small, you know, which is no small thing. I think you got to figure out, okay, now where was that coming from? Right. And, uh, and, you know, and how did that impact and, and play out um, and the reasons why, right? Like this is, I mean, that, that raises a, a whole, all sorts of questions because here you have somebody, you know, in Donald Trump, you know, who as much as he may say, right, there's nobody who loves women more than Donald Trump. Uh, when you look at policies and practices and language, and I mean, it's like, good God, right? And, and yet, right, you still have that. So I think we have to really, at some point, kind of make sense of just voting behavior Right. Uh, and why people are choosing to vote, why different demographics are choosing to vote uh, for the, the, the way they did in this election. I was also I was just talking to a friend, a historian friend today, and we were talking about a lot of the media coverage before the election. And like, oh, my gosh, like so much of it was about white suburban women. Um, the, I know the New York Times profiled a group called um, Red Wine and Blue, which is a group in, I want to say Westerville or New Albany, that where there's a, a group of women who either didn't vote in 2016 or voted for Trump were, you know, switching sides and talking to other um, women in their communities. And, you know, I, I'm has, I'm a little nervous about using exit poll data because I won the votes are going to be finalized and then we all know exit poll data reflects people who vote on election day which in this year has like a partisan divide and so forth but if if the, if those numbers hold up that a majority of white women like a you know narrow majority voted for for donald trump all that coverage looks really suspicious to me in hindsight right that like the, that why wasn't the attention directed in, in other places whether it's um you know african-american women in say atlanta or elsewhere and um, I mean, I don't have an answer to that yet, but it's like something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, from what uh, I've seen, there are two major exit polling operations and their numbers, at least as of about a week ago, were pretty substantially different. Um, so I'm not sure what to make of the exit polling numbers at this point either. I mean, we do have the general trends and I'm, uh, we, we can certainly imagine that uh, the gender gap has, uh, has, has remained, uh, but uh, in general, I'm not sure what to make of, uh, of the, also the education gap uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the two parties. Uh, but I'm not sure what to make of, uh, the, uh, of those numbers and, uh, at the moment either. And can I just like follow up to say that if that the the attention that suburban white women got in this election is like an old story. 
Um, you know, the, the Clinton allegedly won with the soccer moms and George W. Bush won with the national security moms. And there's a, there's a pattern in at least the stories that we tell that may or may not be reflected in the actual like electorate. Well, I mean, Dr. Howard is being very generous and very kind in, 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 his, in his description. I mean, the media is obsessed with white voters, right? I mean, that's, that's what it is. I mean, whether it was sort of white women and, you know, will, you know, Trump sexism turn off white suburban win, women and that's going to be critical because, you know, Hillary Clinton lost some of that. And we saw some, 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 some movement that, that turned out to be quite pivotal, I think, right? Again, we'll have to see this down the road in, you know, su suburbs in around Minneapolis and in, in, in Minnesota, around um, uh, Milwaukee and Wisconsin around Detroit. So we saw some movement in Pennsylvania and some small places that, that proved to be critical, Bucks County, for example. But I think it is reflective of, of, of this obsession with sort of white voters, right? And what's gonna happen on the march. And, and that's not just sort of white women, you know, suburban, uh, suburban white women, but we saw it with, you know, the, 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 the trying to explain the turnout for Trump, right? And sort of economic anxiety, right? Former, you know, uh, white, uh, vote, white voters who uh, cast ballots for Donald, for Barack Obama, and now cast for Trump in 2016. If I had to read another story about that, right, and you know, going up into the, I was gonna go crazy. But it is part of that media obsession, and I think, and in that, one, they miss a critical aspect, so caught up with the economic anxiety aspect, and and miss how racism and this appeal to racism is so powerful and effective and is used to explain economic, explain away economic anxiety or economic fears. So we miss a critical aspect of that story, but I also think we miss what else is happening. As Dr. Hartman pointed out, you know, what was happening in Georgia, right? And the, the mobilization of, of, of black voters there, the increasing numbers of Latino voters, that, that demographic and what has been going on over the last four years, Stacey Abrams and so many others on the ground from 2018, uh, to now, I mean, it's just a phenomenal uh, story. And so much of that got overlooked in our obsession with what a white voter is gonna do in this election. Well, I, I mean, I think it depends on what media you're looking at. I mean, I learned about Stacey Abrams through the media. And, and, and I, do, I do think that, you know, at least the media that I read did pay attention to black women's votes in this election more so than than they ever had in the past. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it wasn't totally, it wasn't totally neglected by the media. I, now, I don't recall, I saw a lot of it on television, um, but, um, and which is where most people get their news. So, you know, in that, in that respect, you're, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. We've had uh, we've had several questions come in uh, about the sort of the whole question of polarization, uh, and particularly people sort of interested to know, uh, you know, do, has there has there been any kind of moment in the past where we've seen this kind of polarization before? Uh, and I think there's some some concern, but uh, with our audience about how, how do we move forward from this? You know, there's a question here asking about how uh, it seems like if you, if you poll most Americans they're uncomfortable with the polarization and yet we somehow kind of remain in our, in our, in our same tribes, uh, you know, as Paula was saying. And, uh, and so I, um, uh, so can we speak to that in terms of, you know, do, is this something unprecedented? What kind of historical parallels can we see? What do we think has caused uh, the degree of polarization we have now? And uh, what's the way forward that you guys would suggest? 
Well, it's interesting that the, you know, that the historical precedent has to do with race also, and that's the pre-Civil War, and I need to turn that over to a 19th century historian, Um, but I I think in terms of polarization that that's the, the predecessor. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the sense that uh, the United States is this sort of 49, 49% country, uh, we see that in the, in the late 19th century from like 1870, so the reconstruction, post-reconstruction elections sort of 1876 through 1896 um, uh, were uh generally close uh it was uh, unusual that uh, it, 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 uh there were very few circumstances where a single party controlled the house uh the senate and the presidency um uh, sort of like four years total uh in in that span of time um uh, and where the divisions seemed to be uh uh cultural uh, some of that uh uh, uh, religious and ethnic, some of that uh, uh, around questions about uh, immigration, and lots of it still uh, coming out of the coming out of the Civil War, uh, and and perhaps it's the case that uh, that whole stalemated period didn't uh, end until the, the the sort of memories of the war uh, uh, dissipated and. Uh, 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 arguably, the uh, divisions now are uh, in, in good measure cultural still, uh, and uh, and maybe this is a, a kind of sort of a set of cultural battles that are that still are coming out of the 1960s and 1970s, and where they go and how that's uh, uh, sifted out. Because otherwise, I mean, the uh, divisions don't seem to be. Uh, particularly economic, but are much more cultural based on uh, uh, race, culture, religion, gender, and uh, and not so much economic. Can I, can I also say that, um, you know, when I, when I read the news, I, I am also concerned about polarization and, and the kind of divisions. But I also would say that I actually think that the polarization, if you want to call it that, is is in many ways it's good, because if you think about like the periods in history when there has been um, less of a divide between the parties and there's been more of a consensus, those have also been like the Jim Crow era. There's been a lot of um, like sidelining of racial inequality where whites come together to not to like not address or reinforce white privilege. And so to some degree, the polarization, if you want to call it that, is, is about sort of like social movements putting pressure on uh, an unjust system and other people pushing back. And so if you think of it that way, the polarization, although maybe scary, is also um, the possibility of like living in a better, more just society. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating way, interesting way of, of, of looking at it. Um, I, th- I think it's accurate as well. Um, and, 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 and to think about the, the other part of the question, uh, Nick, that you asked, like, okay, what do we do about it? Like, that's, that's, that's difficult because, and I don't think that's an easy way forward because the, the polarization, particularly when it gets around race. And I think that is really, I mean, everything else is very much tied to that. I don't think you can separate that out that it's not so much about 
race per se, as we'll often say. And the polarization is around racism, right? Like is, is racism, like does it, need, does it exist or not, right? Does it need to be addressed or not? And I don't quite know how you bridge that divide, right? Like, I mean, you're talking about people's basic humanity and, and, and other folk denying that certain aspects just exist. That is a, you know, that's an unbridgeable chasm, if you ask me, right? Because you, like, what's the middle ground on that? Okay, like, well, we're, we're okay with you just maybe recognizing black humanity, right? Like, like, like there are real issues that need to be addressed. Uh, so, you know, like, I don't know where you go from that, right? This isn't just about policy, right? This is really about people. Uh, and that makes it, you know, the, the last time we had something as deep as that, you think about the Civil War, like, how do you compromise on the enslavement of people or not, as though there were efforts too, right? That doesn't mean that they were right, and you saw where it wound up. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's a real, that, that, that's a serious uh, gap uh, that can't be easily sort of massaged or uh, massaged over, or massaged away. Just, oh, excuse me. In addition to the kind of race question, and you certainly read a lot about uh, polarization being caused by, by a few other factors, one being uh, kind of educational level, that, that increasingly there's this sort of argument that in fact our society is divided uh, politically based upon kind of uh, college educated or not, uh, that that's a major kind of dividing line. Um, the second is generation uh, and uh, and, and then the, uh, a third is the is sort of where you live, the rural, urban, suburban split. Um, in what ways do you see these other kind of explanatory models that have been put forward uh, in, in, in the recent past uh, as kind of important to kind of explaining the polarization uh, and, and perhaps uh, reinforcing some of the things we've talked about in terms of, uh, in, in terms of race in particular uh, and with the racial divide? Susan, do you want to take a stab at that? I'll throw it your way first. I'm going to pass that off. Okay. <laughs> well, Clay, uh, as uh, as a great lover of things suburban, uh, maybe. <laughs> well, I, I think I mean I, I think you have to recognize the instability of these political coalitions, right? And um, I again I, I I don't trust the numbers, but if I look at Biden's share of we the suburban vote, the college educated vote. He, he wins by a margin, but there's a significant percentage of people who voted Republican as well. And that, that number moves. And so if you think about college educated or wealthier white people, they don't always fit comfortably in a political coalition with people of color of all classes, right? And so they'll, they'll like move on and off the line, but they also don't fit in a coalition with working class white voters. And so, I mean, that's like, that's the suburban votes, the one that I know best, but like historically, they don't tend to stick in one coalition and they have different interests than some of the other people in the coalition. And so that, um, that creates some of the instability. Uh, Paul or Susan yeah. or Hassan, do you have any thoughts on this, uh, this question? I guess just to say that uh, it's uh, 
both parties have these pretty unstable coalitions then where uh, the uh, uh, the, uh, the, the extent to which uh, you know, democratic strength has come to be hacked uh, um, into to some extent in you know, major metropolitan areas uh, and a kind of party of, of very wealthy people and, and, and dispossessed people and how that sticks together over time is, uh, and, and how that's going to uh, play out in policy in in the Biden administration is going to be interesting to see how, how that happens, where, uh, uh, for example, uh, proposals having to do with uh, 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 forgiving student loan debt, that sort of thing, uh, and state local tax deductions and so forth tend to be something that would benefit a middle and upper middle class much more than, than anybody else. And uh, so how all of this, you know, plays out is going to be tricky. Can I, can I follow up on what I said earlier to add like a, an example? Um, so some of you may remember in the Democratic debates that Kamala Harris criticized Joe Biden for, being, for, for voting in favor, voting against school integration, so-called busing in the 1970s. And in, in the early 1970s, the courts were ruling in a way that was requiring um, school districts to, to merge, to like to do away with the history of racial segregation in the school districts. And, and suburban districts were facing real threats of being integrated, right? Maybe I shouldn't call it a threat, but like that was a real possibility then. In 2020, there's no possibility of that, that the, the law has moved in such a way where that's like not a realistic thing. And, it, and if you want to see what that looks like, not only does Biden choose Kamala Harris to be his vice president, they announced their campaign together in a high school in Delaware uh, uh, that fought integration in, in the 1970s, right? The, the so-called busing crisis. And so I think that like just the sheer um, like insulation of, of white suburbs from any kind of meaningful integration is the very thing that allows some white suburbanites to express support for Black Lives Matter, right? Like they, they, can, they can, in a way, afford to be more progressive on racial issues because the actual demands upon them are much less than what they were decades ago. And, you know, as, as, I, as, I, as I think about that, and I think you're right, I think you're absolutely right. I only wonder about what that percentage is, right? Because at the same time, as you have that insulation and protection as the courts have moved in a particular direction, um, you also don't have, you also don't have, okay, I won't drink it. Um, you also don't have, um, or you, you don't have, you, you, you do have Trump, for example, you know, you know, playing up this idea that, uh, you know, under a Biden administration, uh, you know, black folk are going to sweep in Cory Booker, old dangerous black Cory Booker, like real, oh, the most dangerous black person is going to sweep into the suburbs, right? And, and, and so, and that you still get a so so what happens with that? Either that either resonates with some of those voters in those same suburbs, or they dismiss it, but are still okay with the rhetoric, right? I mean, when you just look at the numbers, and so I don't know what I don't know what that split is, but I know that it's still that it clearly it manifests in some way. 
We've had a few questions about um, polling, and uh, and I'm wondering if you got, if you could speak a little bit to uh, there's this sort of sense now, particularly in the past two elections, that polling ha uh, has been off, uh, and that we've uh, we've expected a certain outcome and gotten something slightly different. Um, and uh, could we speak a little bit to the kind of historical present of how? When did polling kind of start and, and how accurate has it been uh, over the years? Are, are we in a situation where really polling is fundamentally different and off, or is this simply uh, uh, something that fits into kind of longer term historical uh, patterns? I sort of think of it as beginning in the, <clears throat> in the, in the 1930s. Uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt sort of had an in-house pollster who uh, in 1936 uh, worked with not random samples or anything along those lines, but this guy was a, uh, a geologist by training and so understood strata and worked with the data that was around in and so could look at, say, the famous uh, uh, um, literary digest poll and say, wow, you know, if the uh, middle class readership of this uh, magazine is uh, just slightly Republican, then then we're 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 really in good shape. Um, and I think and and polling uh, was done and expensive uh, uh, to do before that. It was sort of a door to door operation. Uh, once uh, telephone use is really widespread and, uh, and it's possible to run it that way. You kind of have a sort of golden age of polling um, and where you can, and people would pick up and answer uh, and we're not yet in robocalls and that begins to uh, fall apart. Um, and uh, it falls apart with cell phones. It falls apart before that to some extent with uh, uh, people buying answering machines and not, not picking up. And you, it was possible in the industry to uh, just you know, keep going and work with the samples that they had and, and it worked out reasonably well. But, the, but between uh, cell phones and people not picking up uh, uh, those answers and also you know, some, some, some portion just lying to pollsters, uh, it's uh, it's going to be troublesome um, going forward because you don't care if the people not picking up are all pretty much like each other. If the people not picking up are, are uh, systematically different, that's a that's a problem. And um, and it seemed to be a, 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 the one result that really struck me was uh, 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 the Susan Collins winning pretty easily in Maine, uh, which. Uh, uh, she looked to be um, in, a, in a fair amount of trouble, but uh, no. It, uh, it has been suggested also that, um, that Trump supporters didn't necessarily lie. They just didn't respond to pollsters. Um, and, and, and that is part of a general distrust of experts, academics, the establishment, uh, mm -hmm. that they don't trust, they don't have confidence in, they don't trust in, and they don't want to have anything to do with. Um, and, and so they opted out of, of being polled and being polled, and, and so they were under undercounted. And also a distrust of media, too. Yes. Yes. I've also had a series of questions uh, that look to me like they're um, 
they're thinking about how to how to explain the appeal of Donald Trump. We've had a couple of people talk about uh, 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 voters seeing him as a messiah or as the savior. These are sorry, I'm just quoting from the people who've written in the questions and. Um, uh, and also others trying to figure out uh, what explains uh, the kind of uh, voting patterns uh, uh, for President Trump, either from, uh, from women or from, uh, uh, from kind of working class voters and this sort of thing. Um, and I guess, so let me throw it out in, in a couple of different types of questions. So one is, uh, are there, can we think of precedents of presidents in the past who have had this kind of messianic or kind of savior aura uh, to them, uh, and uh, are, are there things we can see from history that would help us to uh, to understand kind of the the uh, the appeal of uh, of this president to uh, uh, to, the, to obviously a large segment of the population? Um, I don't know who feels brave to take on that kind of a question. Um, Clay, you want to jump in? Well, you know uh, it, that's a question I've asked myself, both as as a, like a historian and also. Just like a you know a citizen, um, there's a great book called *Strangers in Their Own Land*, which is a it's a sociology book by Arlie Hochschild, and she interviewed in 2014 2015 people in um, like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, like one of the most polluted part of the states, and she asked herself why why are the people who live in the most polluted place with all kinds of health problems, why are they the least likely to want government regulation of like the petroleum industry and so forth? And she interviewed them and she, she came up with this concept that she calls the deep story. And the idea is that we all have them. We all have these stories that we tell about our lives and our place in society. And she said for the people that she was interviewing in this part of Louisiana, but you can like round it up to like a larger percentage of the Republican electorate, she said, they imagine themselves waiting in line. And at the end of the line, there's something called the American dream. And they've been in line like forever, just waiting and waiting. And it just seems like the line is not moving. And then they start to notice people cutting in line. This, this is her description. And it looks like they're, they're immigrants, maybe undocumented. And even worse, President Obama is waving them in. He's giving them like a wink. He's like, go ahead, it's your turn. And, and she, as she describes it, they, they feel like they've been, these are the people in her book, right? Not necessarily everyone, but that they feel cheated and that they've paid their dues and that other people, particularly based on their race, are getting a shortcut. And, and she said that the people she interviewed heard that story and they're like, yes, yes, that's definitely how I felt. And so when I hear that story, I think, of course, there's like the longstanding, you know, power of like white privilege in this country, right? To, to imagine other people getting, cutting in line, but also like that, the, that the, the economy is sort of stalled, right? That like income inequality has been rising for decades and the actual like possibilities for most people has actually also stalled. And I think that what the story does, it brings together people's economic anxiety and their racial anxieties and puts them together. And then, and then Donald Trump, when he announced his election, spoke to all those things all at once. It, yeah, it is hard to, um, to, to make that consistent with the president who gives huge tax breaks 
to the rich. Um, you, you know, and part of that might, I mean, part of that might be compensated for by, you know, by, by the huge, uh, uh, you know, antivirus program, the expenditure of money and, and, and the support for really working class people. Um, but, um, but, but there is that incongruence between, you know, his act, most of his actual policies, let, let aside the COVID package of aid, but uh, his actual policies and, um, and, and his supporters' economic uh, position. And, and you had that same, I think, contradiction among Reagan's supporters in the 80s, where you know, he got a lot of working class support while cutting, cutting public programs and, and, uh, and embracing pol policies that really were not in their favor. This is the, but that's actually where I see like race being so, and racism playing such a critical role because you know, we may look at it objectively and be like, this is illogical, right? Like these policies do not support the things that you need, but where, but where the racism comes into play, the people who are skipping ahead, right? Whether it's new immigrants, undocumented, illegal, illegals, if you will, or whether it was affirmative action in the 19, and welfare queens and moms in the, in the 1980s, it was like they were to blame, right? Like they're the problem, like that issue is the problem, right? Not the corporate giveaways and the corporate tax breaks. Like I wanna get to that point where, but if like, that's not an issue. Like I, that's where I wanna be. I wanna be the beneficiary of that. And if it wasn't for these things led by these people, like I would be able to get there. And I, I think that, you know, Clay, you had brought up sort of the white privilege thing, right? And I was like, I think that that hits the nail on the head. Right, but it's the it's the idea that the white like like white privilege is not it's called white privilege, right? It's not called white guarantee, right? Like you're not guaranteed to get ahead because you're white. You just have the privilege of not having to deal with some of the mess that black folk got to deal with. But it gets confused, and so when suddenly you're not able to tap into the white the privilege aspect of it, you start blaming people of color. Right, it's like, what you blaming us for? We ain't, that's not our fault. You couldn't access your whiteness, right? Don't blame us. Like that has larger issues. And I think the relationship between the two, yeah, there's some economic anxiety there for sure. And the, and the system hasn't been working out in their favor. Yes, we get that. How do you explain it? What resonates with them? And here I think racism as just a powerful political organizing tool is what we saw really play out over and over. And that's what Trump tapped, in, tapped into. And we can talk about populism. Or it was, he, was, he was pitching racism. And he knew that if he knew nothing else, he knew how powerful it was. It would animate people who felt alienated, white folk who felt alienated. And it did that. And he also knew or was counting on, and we were like, no, this won't work, myself included, that there would be enough white folk who would not be upset over it. And we also saw that play out too, right? So those two things can actually coexist. I think one of the lessons uh, sort of going forward is that we thought, so the, 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 the high cries of racism for organizing people that might've died in 68 or 72 with, or, with George Wallace. Like, no, apparently not, right? Like this is, this is still very powerful and it also won't lose you as many votes as people thought uh, it would lose if you played that game. 
I don't. Oh, go ahead, Paula. I just want to, uh, uh, if uh, if all of this uh, is working in, uh, uh, if uh, uh, white working class poor people are uh, in particular given to uh, the appeals of Trump uh, against their interests, how could they be brought back? Uh, if, or if or to, uh, you know, either it's, uh, you know, kind of overcoming some sense of, of uh, their feel, feeling, you know, uh, you know, cheated and, uh, and uh, their, their sense of, uh, of racial privilege. Okay, uh, how, how are they brought back? Because uh, they used to be Democrats. Well, well I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, right? Like, I'm really not sure. If, if they've, how far they've actually, where they were, right? Like to what extent were these folk, and this is part of the undercount, to what extent were they not there? Were they, were they on the sidelines? To what extent that, that, that animated population that, that comes out for, for Trump did not come out for John McCain, did not come out, um, you know, in, uh, you know, after, you know, in, in 2012. Like that becomes kind of a question. Like I, I'm not sure. Like, like we we want to say that you know, you know, okay, this is something new. Like, is it really, or was this just tapping into sort of a latent sentiment that had been there that we saw from you know sort of '64 on forward? Can I can I offer like a um a kind of a way that um something that I've been interested in? It's the way that Democrats have tried to answer this question. And so during the 1980s and 1990s, Americans fought over welfare, right? So-called welfare reform. And there were all these stereotypes about who was on welfare and many white people were much more likely to believe that African-Americans were a majority of welfare recipients, which wasn't true. There's all kinds of stereotypes about black women in particular that were floating around. And eventually, um, you know, states and the federal government, you know, really slashed what, how much money they spent on, on welfare. There's people in the 80s and 90s, like William Julius Wilson was a sociologist, and he says, look at, look at the way that people talk about welfare on one hand, and how they talk about social security on the other, right, or Medicare. And it's like, if you think something is universal, they'll defend it forever, right? They'll defend it forever. But if they think that only some people are getting it, and that those people aren't, aren't white, they're going to be very convinced that it's corrupt and that, it's, that there's fraud and you have, to, you have to get rid of it. And that's why the Democrats have been so focused on healthcare and why Clinton brought it up in the early 1990s and why Obama brought it up again. And I think the question is like, I'm still not sure if the healthcare proposals actually have addressed this problem because they thought in part it was gonna build a multiracial coalition and that universal healthcare was gonna be like social security or Medicare where everyone kind of comes together, but the US has a fragmented healthcare system where some people get it through their employer, some people get Medicaid, other people get, so like, and then those different groups often see the other ones negatively, right? And so I'm not sure if the healthcare policy actually is the way that you build that kind of coalition or if it's actually precisely why it can never come together. Let me, uh, let me ask one other, we have a question here about teaching history, which seems right up our alley. Uh, and, uh, um, and so I'm interested uh, just in, in, in the last few minutes we have here, um, 
The, uh, the question, and I'm going to paraphrase and edit just a little bit, but uh, it says, it seems like the US has failed pretty spectacularly at grappling with its own history, uh, particularly with regards uh, uh, to slavery. Um, I don't see how we can address contemporary racism or sexism or any other of these other issues without building a national understanding of our past. As professors tasked with teaching our history, can you speak to how we can do a better job at this? Um, Susan, let me throw it your way first. Uh, what, what can we do as professors uh, or what can we do more generally in, the, in terms of the teaching of history in our country to address these issues? Well, um, Hassan has, has, addre has addressed the issue of teaching race in much more detail than I, than I could ever um, imagine. Um, but, but I do think um, emphasizing history as a subject that everyone should, you know, pay attention to. Um, and, 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 and without just being, uh, you know, a consistent critic of the United States, but, but really examining our past critically um, rather than flag waving. Um, I mean, not that anybody that I know who teaches history does that, but, um, but, but I think, I think that the really critical examination of, of our past um, and um, emphasizing the fact that the United States is not exceptional um, uh, would, would be important. Um, and then just teaching students to be critical about what they absorb, about what they see on, on social media, um, in, um, in the press is really uh, important. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, Susan, I, I deliberately didn't send this to Hassan to start, uh, but Hassan, who, who has developed this remarkable um, kind of teaching art history program, uh, in a minute or two, can you tell us what, uh, what we should take away from that, Hassan? Yeah, everything everything that's in that stuff is just stuff I learned from Dr. Hartman, right? I mean, you gotta have you gotta have critical media skills, right? Critical media literacy. Um, I think the highest form of patriotism is critical analysis, right? Looking back at the past with a critical eye to see what actually happened, to see the strengths, but also to make sense of make sense of the weaknesses. You know, it, it's. It, and we have to push back on some of the myths, right? Like one of the myths, uh, as Susan, you had just pointed out, was this myth of American exceptionalism. And we say, well, you know, a myth is a myth, it's a story. We can all get behind a story. Like, no, it has real world consequences. We're actually seeing that right now with the coronavirus, right? Like, oh, that won't happen over here. Like, we'll take care. I mean, that's that myth of American exceptionalism. Like stuff just doesn't happen here that happens elsewhere. And now we got a quarter of a million people dead. I mean, so there are real world consequences with that. And there's another, in, in terms of how we shape and, and get behind policy. And I think another major myth that we have to tackle in our classrooms with our students is the myth of perpetual progress. This idea that things always get better in America. Like, yeah, it may have been bad once, but by golly, you just wait, right? And time will take care of it. And, and that's particularly dangerous because it pulls us away from actually looking at the ways in which things change like, and what needs to change. Right, like the pressure that people put on uh, government, on society to say, hey, let's move this. Our principles, our priorities have changed. And I think that's critically important. And that also gives agency to people and to students and to young people saying the power to shape society uh, is, is in your hands. You just got to know what the levers are and, and figure out how you want to move forward. 
Paul and Clay, do you have thoughts on this? We can do our job better teaching history. I'm afraid to answer this question because in some ways I'm skeptical of the premise, you know, and I, I'm not saying, but this is nothing about the person who asked this question, of course. But when I hear people ask that question, it's often like, well, the problems we have are because people don't understand their history. And I, that like, that may be true. And I certainly have seen like the, power of like teaching history in the classroom myself. But I also like don't look at some of the problems in American society and think if only people understood American history better, we wouldn't have this problem. And of course, like no one is saying it should only be that. But I feel like in some ways that like understanding the past has this like mythical power. And I guess what I would say is I sometimes think about like we might benefit more from something like school integration or having a more diverse faculty in like high schools and colleges. And like the question of like who is in the classroom might have a much greater impact on um, what future generations of Americans think about these issues than anything that I might teach in a lecture. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be like, um, self-deprecating about my lectures or anyone else's lectures, but that that might be a more powerful factor. I could second that idea where uh, you know, uh, uh, experience could matter a whole lot more. Uh, and in Ohio in particular, where students are done with history very early, is it, uh, is it uh, after, is it the eighth grade? history is an elective. Uh, I would be uh, happy with students who have even like a mythical history in their heads that you could push against uh, rather than, you know, sort of no history at all. So. Marvelous. Well, amazingly enough, our hour has flown by and, uh, and uh, our apologies to everybody who asked extraordinarily interesting questions that we didn't quite get uh, uh, a chance to uh, to get to, um, but uh, first, uh, I, I just want to say thank you all so much for uh, for joining us today. Uh, I'm grateful to our our, our panelists, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, Paula Baker, Susan Hartman, uh, and Clay Howard, uh, for sharing their expertise. I hope you'll all uh, join me in giving them a virtual round of applause. Thank you, guys, so very much uh, uh, for your insights uh, and for your conversation today. Uh, I'd also like to, to thank um, all the people at the College of Arts and Sciences who have made uh, this event possible, uh, especially Clara Davison, uh, and also to the History Department, uh, the Goldberg Center for uh, uh, Excellence in Teaching, uh, and the magazine Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective for their uh, sponsorship. Uh, and once again, thank you, uh, our audience, uh, for all your excellent questions and your ongoing connection to Ohio State. Stay safe and stay healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye.